Uh, good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you now at the passage of the Bible that was just read to us, Philippians 1, 27 to 2, 11. Can I encourage you to have it open in front of you because I'm going to read it again, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you so much for giving us your son. Thank you for the great news about him. Help us uh, as we look at your word now to understand more what Jesus has done for us and how to live a life worthy of the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever heard the term conduct unbecoming? Conduct unbecoming. Uh, the word unbecoming in this context means uh, inappropriate, unworthy, something like that. And so conduct unbecoming means acting in a manner that it doesn't fit, it's not appropriate, it's not right. So actually, originally it was a military term. The idea is that there's uh, conduct unbecoming of being an officer and a gentleman. The idea is it's a privilege to be an officer and a gentleman, and, and there's, a, there's a way to, to live worthily of that. Uh, traces back to the 18th and early 19th century. Uh, it's used as a charge in military court-martials, the idea of conduct unbecoming. It was first codified, from what we can tell, in 1860, in Article 24 of the Naval, Naval Discipline Act in England, which... Uh, states it this way, every officer subject to this act who shall be guilty of cruelty or of any scandalous or fraudulent conduct shall be dismissed with disgrace from Her Majesty's service. And every officer subject to this act who shall be guilty of any other conduct unbecoming the character of an officer shall be dismissed with or without disgrace from Her Majesty's service. Sounds like old-fashioned language, conduct unbecoming. It's actually still current language in the United States military. Article 133 of the United States Uniform Code of Military Justice says this, any commissioned officer, cadet or midshipman who is convicted of conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman should be punished as a court-martial may direct. And it goes on to say that a gentleman, in this case a term not limited to men, is understood to have a duty to avoid dishonesty indecency, indecorum, lawlessness, injustice, unfairness and cruelty. Again, it's a privilege to be an officer and to be a gentleman. And there's, there's conduct that is, that is worthy, that is becoming of such a privilege. Some of you may have seen the, the movie A Few Good Men. You know what I mean? You can't handle the truth. You know that movie with... Uh, with uh, with uh, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, I'm about to uh, wreck the ending of it for you. Shut your ears for a second. Uh, you might remember that uh, Tom Cruise gets the Marines off the, the murder charge and the conspiracy to commit murder charge, but they are still found guilty of conduct unbecoming of a United States Marine. What they did was still held inappropriate for a Marine, something that brought the Marines into this disrepute. It's actually an error in the movie. There's no such thing as conduct unbecoming of a Marine. It's only of an officer, and they weren't officers. Anyway, don't. <laughs> uh, you can also find uh, the concept in the New South Wales Police. An employee, this is uh, New South Wales Police Code of Conduct of the New South Wales Police Force, must behave honestly and in a way that upholds the values and good reputation of the New South Wales Police Force, whether on or off duty. It's a privilege to be a policeman, to wear the uniform you're representing the New South Wales Police Force and the way you conduct yourself, if you conduct yourself in an unworthy manner, well, it's, it's not appropriate, it's unbecoming. 
You can also find the concept in sporting teams. The AFL code has a, a charge of unbecoming for the way some AFL players act towards women. Uh, back in 2004, John Hopawate from the West Tigers was suspended for conduct unbecoming. I won't tell you why, except to say that it was thoroughly unbecoming. You can find the concept in some workplaces. You can also find the concept in some schools as well, particularly posh schools. I remember my school was very big on the whole idea. You always had to wear your full school uniform in public. And if a member of the public ever dobbed in one of the boys from our school for playing up on the bus or something like that, it was like the end of the world had come. We were often reminded, it is a privilege to be part of this school. Your parents are paying so much money. You need to act in a way... Well, not with conduct unbecoming, with conduct becoming. We've come now to the third of uh, our talks in this series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, remember our background, remember what this letter is all about. So the Philippians heard that Paul was in jail, probably in Rome, and they sent one of their members, a guy called, do you remember his name? Epaphroditus. They sent Epaphroditus to be with Paul in jail and to bring a gift and some encouragement from the church. And so now what Paul's doing, he's sending Epaphroditus back to the church and he's given him a letter to take back with him. And in this letter, he, uh, he, he's, he's, he wants to say thank you. Thank you so much for, for, for what you did for me. He wants to give him an update of, of what's happening with him and also address a few issues that Epaphroditus has told him about. Week before last, do you remember we saw Paul introduced himself and he, he, he said, thank you so much for your partnership. I thank God for your partnership. And he told them what he's praying for them, that they'd love wisely. Uh, then last week, do you remember, Paul gave the church an update, told them about his circumstances, pretty, pretty grim circumstances, do you remember? He's in jail. People are taking the opportunity to malign him. And he's facing a trial that could lead to the death sentence, to his execution. Well, now in this next, set of, next section of his letter, now that he's given them the update on what's happening with him, he turns to the Philippians and he says, look, whatever happens to me, whether I'm stuck in jail for the rest of my life, whether I'm executed or whether I'm released and can come and see you again, whatever happens to me, here's what I want for you. Here's what I want for you. I want you to strive for one thing. He says he wants them to show what you might call conduct becoming. Not conduct unbecoming, conduct becoming. The opposite. Paul wants them to show conduct that is worthy, appropriate, fitting for people who believe the good news about Jesus. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, have a look with me. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens to Paul, whether he's killed or imprisoned or, or, or whether he can come out, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Philippians need to show conduct becoming of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, that's what Paul answers in the rest of this section. And uh, he, he answers the question in two ways. First of all, he talks about what it will look like for them to show conduct worthy of the gospel as a church. Conduct becoming of the gospel as a church. And then, and then he kind of boils it down to what it will mean for them as individuals to show conduct becoming of the gospel. So first he talks about what it will look like as a church. If they, if they live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, if they show conduct becoming, then whether Paul is stuck in jail or whether he's released, he's going to know what the church is like. 
It will be like a united team. Like a united team that stands firm, helping each other to trust in Jesus. And like a united team that helps each other to commend the gospel to the world, to commend and defend the good news about Jesus. Still in verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, in jail or dead, I will know, here's the picture, that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened anyway by those who oppose you. Do you get the picture? This church united as a team, standing firm, commanding the gospel. Paul says, if that's what you like, if, you, if you're united, if you're bravely standing firm, if you're telling people about Jesus, that is a sign. People might not recognise it, but it is a sign from God. The unity of the church is a sign that the church will be saved, but that those who oppose them will be destroyed. Continuing in verse 28, this is a sign to them the unity of the church, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. And Paul says, God, God is the one who has given the Philippians faith in Jesus. But more than that, God is the one who's also given them the gift of suffering for Jesus. This is also a gift to them from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you just allow me to go off on a tangent for a minute or two, that verse 29 is a pretty amazing sentence. Don't you reckon? First, notice that believing in Jesus is a gift. It's a gift from God. That's not just true of the Philippians, that's true of you and me as well. The fact that you believe in Jesus is a gift to you from God. You couldn't have done it on your own. The Bible says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. It is only if God shines the light. It is only if God makes us alive in Christ that we can believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus, it is not something to be proud of, at least not something to be proud of yourself for. No, no. Being believers in Jesus doesn't make us better than anyone else doesn't make us smarter than anyone else. It's not something to pat, on our, pat ourselves on the back for. If you believe in Jesus, that is a gift to you from God for which you should, you should say thank you very much. But notice this also, there in verse 29, so is suffering for Jesus. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? I think for most of us, Deep down, we assume that if we're good Christians, then God will give us a nice life. Very few of us would think that suffering for Jesus is a gift from God. And yet there it is. I take it not just true for the Philippians, but true for us as well. God gives us the gift of suffering and he has his good purposes for us and it is opportunity for us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and commend his gospel just like we saw with Paul last last week remember in jail being maligned facing the death sentence all opportunities all gifts from God to serve Jesus 
worth thinking about. Anyway, tangent over, the big idea is this. If the Philippian church lives worthily of the gospel, if they show conduct becoming of the gospel, then they will be a united team, standing firm and as a team, commending the gospel bravely to the world. The church will be a bit like a Roman unit, moving forward as one, shielding each other, contending together. That's what the church will be like if they show conduct becoming of the gospel. Now, in chapter 2, Paul goes on to talk about what it will look like for them as individuals to show conduct becoming of the gospel, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He starts off by talking about the gospel and the amazing things that the Philippians have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says God has united them to Jesus. All the good things that Jesus has won are theirs. He also says that God has loved them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has united them to each other by his Holy Spirit. God has shown them tenderness. God has shown them compassion. God has shown them all these glorious things in the gospel. And that should demand a response. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, God has done so much for these Philippians, and now in view of those things, if they've been impacted by those things, if they grasp those things, they should respond. They need to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what's that going to mean? It's going to mean they don't just think about themselves. They don't put themselves first. They don't live for themselves. It'll mean being humble servants of other people. That's what will help them to be united. And that is what will bring them joy and glory to God. Verse 2, Paul says, If they do have all of these things in the gospel, verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. Being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's a, that's a big call, isn't it? Pretty hard to live like that. But it's not an unfair thing to ask. Is it? It's not unreasonable. I mean, if God has united you to Christ and given you all the benefits of righteousness and forgiveness, if God has loved you in the Lord Jesus and united you by his spirit with his people, if God has shown you tenderness and compassion, if God has done all of these things for you, it's just becoming, isn't it? To respond this way by being a humble servant of others. Paul wants the Philippians to be humble and servant-hearted. That will lead to their unity and to their joy. That'll be conduct becoming of the gospel. And, And now to inform them and to inspire them even more, he reminds them of what Jesus has done. Jesus was the ultimate example of humble service of others. He, Jesus had it all. He was God. He had everything in the universe. He could have used it to say, oh, great, you can all bow down to me and kiss my toes or something like that, but no, no, no. In humble obedience to his father, Jesus became a baby, helpless, 
in humble obedience to his father, Jesus lived a sin-free life as a man. In humble obedience and fealty to his father, Jesus served God to the fullest, humblest extent possible, even to death on a cross. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's the ultimate humble servant and how did God respond to him by making him the ultimate authority in the universe by raising Jesus to God's right hand giving him all authority in heaven and earth and Paul says the day is going to come when everyone's going to have to acknowledge it every knee will bow every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord like it or not that is the future for every person ever bowing the knee to King Jesus verse 9 therefore of Jesus' extraordinary humble service. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, can you see what's here then in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians? He's finished giving them his update about what's happening with him and now he turns to them and says, look, whatever happens to me, here's what I want for you. I want you to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Conduct becoming. As a church, that means you're going to be united together, helping each other stand firm and, and bravely commend the gospel to a hostile world. And as individuals, that's going to mean humble, other person-centred service, following the example of the Lord Jesus in the light of the glorious things you have in the gospel. All right. Well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. I think we need to think about what it means for us as a church. Are we a church that is... Showing conduct becoming. And I think it's going to come down to us as individuals as well, isn't it? Are we people who are showing conduct becoming of the gospel? Let's think about ourselves as a church. Paul says that a church walking worthy of the gospel is going to be a united team, standing firm, trusting Jesus, a united team bravely working together to commend Jesus to a hostile world. So is that us? Are we a church united in helping each other to stand firm in Jesus? I'm sure there are lots of ways that we could improve, but I mean, I do see lots of examples of people helping each other to keep on going as Christians. I see it at church, as people encourage each other, as they look out for visitors, as they talk to each other. I see it at morning tea and supper, I see people praying for each other, I see it in Bible studies. People are encouraging each other to stand firm. I was catching up the other day with one of our female Bible study leaders and she told me that some ladies in our church have started a book club to encourage each other. They're reading the book Gentle and Lowly together. A great book and a great idea. Great idea. It wasn't my idea, so I can say it was a really good one. Uh, to work together to help each other stand firm in Christ. What about uh, are we a church then that is bravely working as a team to commend the gospel to the world? 
I think maybe we're not quite so good at that one as we are at helping each other to stand firm, but still I see good examples of people bravely striving together for the faith of the gospel. I was talking to a friend the other day and he was saying he really wanted to share the gospel with his dad, but uh, his dad, in, in his culture, he said it's almost impossible. His dad is older than him, his dad, you know, he's supposed to honour his dad, that kind of thing. So what he did is there, there was an older guy in his Bible study and he invited his dad over for dinner and he invited this older, older guy from Bible study and got him to talk to his dad about Jesus, which he did. I heard a similar story from a wife who's got a non-Christian husband the other day. She invited a couple over from Bible study and got the, the husband from Bible study to befriend her husband and start talking to him about Jesus, which he did. I had a similar experience myself just the other day. Um, well, not the other day. It's a couple of years ago now. But uh, a, a girl in our church... Um, that's still the other day. It's not today. Uh, the, um, uh, a girl in our church whose brother was really harassing her, asking her all these difficult questions about Jesus and so on. And she said, look, I don't know the answer to your questions. You should come and talk to my pastor. So he did. We brought a couple of friends along with him as well. And we met together a few times. You remember our series last year, Love Changes the Conversation? We were talking about how we can pray for each other's unsaved um, friends and family. We shared some ideas about how we might help each other to talk to our friends and family about Jesus, how we can strive together as a team. Are we a church that is showing conduct becoming of the gospel? A united team, helping each other to stand firm, helping each other to commend the gospel to the world? I see evidence that the answer is yes to that question. Of course, there are lots of ways we can improve and ultimately, Ultimately, what's going to make the difference is, is what you do and what I do. It, it comes down to us as individuals, doesn't it? So let's ask ourselves, what about us as individuals? Are we as individuals showing conduct becoming of the gospel? Are we following Jesus' example of humble, other person-centred service in response to the gospel? Uh, this year I'm leading a, a Bible study group for the evening service for the first time in a long time. It's quite a culture shock for me as I deal with kids who are basically my children's age. And uh, in Bible study this week, if you, if you did it or if you're going to do it, you'll, you'll see that there's a question about how you're going at following the example of Jesus in humble service and it gives different contexts at home, uh, in church, in Bible study, at work or a study, that kind of thing. Uh, we didn't get past the at home part. I asked the question, so if you, were to, um, if, if you were to make your breakfast and make a whole heap of mess and then notice that the dishwasher is clean, but it's really your brother's job to do it, what would you do? Empty the dishwasher or dump your dirty dishes in the sink? Which would Jesus do? I saw kind of looks of horror on all these people in my, in my Bible study group and we spent the next 20 minutes discussing what does it look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus' example of service? What, what, what will it mean in the way that you relate to your family when you time, come home tired and grumpy? What will it mean in terms of pitching in and helping out? What will it mean in terms of engaging with courtesy, saying hello and goodbye, for example? Eating with your family, not just staying on your computer in your room, which shouldn't be there anyway. Uh, we agreed that it's fair enough that when you, you come home, you should be able to let your hair down a bit. It should be a safe place where you know you're loved and they're stuck with you anyway. You don't have to put on a performance. But we also agreed this still applies. 
God still wants us to follow the example of Jesus and be humble servants in our home. Anyway, I'm sure that only applies to the evening service. For, for us, let's, uh, let, let, let's, <laughs> let's talk more about the context of church, being humble servants as individuals in church. Again, I hear good stories. I hear good stories. A, a while ago, I met with uh, one of the Bible study leaders in our church. He was working for a particular uh, company, a bank, and I said to him, do you know John from our church? It's not his real name. I don't want to embarrass him. Do you know John from our church? I, I think he might work in the same company that you do. He goes, I haven't met John. Let me look him up. Looks him up on the company directory in his phone. He goes, I want to know John. I don't know John, but I want to know John. He's one of the big bosses in our company. He's really prestigious. Six months later, I was catching up with the same Bible study leader, and I said, oh, did you ever get to meet John? He said, you'll never believe it. I was at church. I went to the toilet, and there was John cleaning the toilet. He was on toilet duty. I don't think you'll see service like that, humble service like that in too many places. Jesus-like service. And I know there are lots of people here who on many occasions are conducting themselves in this kind of way. You won't know about it because I don't blow a trumpet advertising what they're doing, but it's happening. Ultimately, though, as you think about applying this passage to yourself, you've got to ask yourself the question, am I conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Have I received all the good things? That Am I encouraged by being united with Christ? Have I been loved by Jesus? Have I been united with his people by the Spirit? Have I received tenderness and compassion in the gospel? Well, then... Am I now conducting myself becomingly, following the example of Jesus in humble service? You know, the modern tendency in churches, and I hear this all the time with people who are church shopping, so-called, the modern tendency in churches is to ask yourself the question, is the church meeting my needs? Are my kids catered for? Do I like the preaching? Are the announcements any good? Are are there there people who are like me that I can be friends with? Is the morning tea up to scratch? What can the church do for me? I'm not saying those are irrelevant questions to ask, but friends, more and more, we need to be asking ourselves the question, what can I do for Jesus and for his people? Who can I welcome Who can I encourage? Who can I pray for? I was uh, walking my dog the other day and uh, I met uh, with a girl who's been at church for a little while and she said to me, I pray for you every day. I was trying not to cry. (laughs) (laughs) Who can I pray for? How can I serve? Our friends, God has given us great things in Jesus, hasn't he? And God has given us the great example of Jesus, that example of humble service. So let's not be guilty of conduct unbecoming. Let's respond by conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the good things you've given us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for uniting us to him and granting us forgiveness and and righteousness thank you for giving us faith thank you for giving us suffering thank you for uniting us to each other by your spirit thank you thank you thank you for so many good things in the gospel will you help us now by your spirit to walk worthily of the gospel of christ to conduct ourselves in a way that is becoming 
Help us as a church to be united, helping each other to stand firm and commending the gospel to the world. Help us as individuals to be humble, other person-centred servants. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.